Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. Welcome, everybody, to the X Overland podcast. My name is Leah Heffelfinger, and I am the usual co-host. Um, but today, I am introducing the podcast with um, Emily Miller, who is the founder of the Rebel Rally, or many other things as well. But that is one of her top reasons that she's here today. Um, and I have our usual host, uh, Jimmy Lewis, here as well. Um, and we are hello. Uh, we are here today to really pick Emily's brain and um, just learn about her. Um, and dig into some of the behind the scenes of her life um, because she is an amazing human. Um, and just a little bit of backstory, but uh, Rochelle Croft and I have both um, participated in the Rebel and just are huge fans of Emily and what she brings to the, the whole world, not just the event itself. So with that, um, I wanted to start off just by saying a little quote that I heard from Emily a while back when we were um, pre-recording and because um, it really sets the tone from, for, for today. Um, she said something to the effect of, if you want to be good, learn from good. And if you want to be great, learn from great. And so here we are today, in my opinion, learning from the greatest. <laughs> Emily, how are you? I am good. Thank you. I don't know if I can live up to what you just said, but um, yeah, thanks, Leah. Means a I lot. promise you can. <laughs> I love how in your introduction to Leah, you mentioned, you know, Emily's role with the rebel, but then her role in, in greater life, you know, her mission and how much work she does to inspire others and women in particular to feel comfortable stepping into uncomfortable spaces. Um, and, you know, learning from the great, I, I, my hope, Emily, is, is our audience, you know, the privilege of having you on the podcast will give them that opportunity to learn and gain insight from you. Uh, one of the greats in our book. So yeah, a big welcome. All right. Well, thanks. Let's do this. Let's do this. One topic that we jumped into um, that might be fun, I, I might be a fun place to start given you know what's happening and what you're dealing with at the moment, uh, is this technology versus skills um, and, and what that looks like when you're off-road, when you're you know, overlanding, adventuring, traveling um, as a master in navigation. Um, what do you think? Could we jump in there? Sure. I think we did a deep dive uh, on that topic <laughs> last time I talked to you guys. Yeah, and our, and our, our pre-convo really, really turned into more of a podcast, I feel like. So. Tom, we should have recorded it. Yeah, so I think I had just come off of teaching a series of classes where I teach traditional navigation, and then I also teach uh, GPS navigation and, and, and the technology that we use. And... I don't know if I would call it like technology versus skill. It's just technology without the base level of skill can really get you into trouble. Mm -hmm. But technology with the base level of skill and knowledge and knowing how to implement it and also understanding your top uh, technology, you're exceptionally empowered, meaning you can take what you're doing next level with that technology. And you know, so 
we've been doing things like navigating and driving, doing all these things without all this technology, without the internet, without GPS, you know, for, um, you know, forever, really. (laughs) (laughs) Until, you know, we've been exploring without all that until recent, you know, more recently, we actually look back and see when GPS was um, invented and then actually implemented. And then the full scale of implementation, it hasn't been very long. It's been in most of our, you know, your listeners' lifetimes and more modern, you know, more recent lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think um, it's an important topic. Uh, I I think a lot of people, um, they buy all the gadgets. And I what I see, here's what I tend to see, is that people don't do the pre-preparation and they don't. Uh, understand how to fully use the technology that they have. Mm-hmm. So pre-planning, pre-prep, especially as it's related to to overlanding, and then really understanding, having the base level of knowledge, so you understand what your technology is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have that. Mm-hmm. I think on a on a really basic level, something that I learned recently, um, I did a long road trip um, up to Montana this summer and uh, forced myself to use um, Onyx, not for the first time, but like really I was like, I'm, I'm going to do my best to rely on this. Um, but what I chose to do and what I think is a smart idea and kind of backs up what you're saying is I, I didn't leave town without a paper map. Um, and I think that is the, that's the end all be all of, of the technology, like not end all be all, that's a broad statement there, but um it's such a good example of like your technology at some point is going to fail. You're, for example, you're going to run over your phone. You're going, something's going to break and it's not, but your paper map is probably always going to be available. So having that, um, uh, that as your fallback is really important. So now this is, I I just want to jump in here because, you know, I'm thinking of the rebel. Um, and what led me to that was I'm thinking about how it in navigating, using paper maps or tech or both, um, I tend to rush maybe too much. Like I, I'm trying to get to where I want to get to too fast uh, or I don't have a lot of time to prepare for my trip. And so it's like, well, that's good enough. I need to go. And I, it, Emily, do you think like effective navigation takes time? Yeah, I, I think it does. I, and I think effective, it dep- I'll put it two different ways. It, it's going to take time. If you have the base level of knowledge and skill, it's going to take you less time because you're going to know exactly what you need to do. You're going to know what the numbers mean. You're going to know what kind of route files. You're going to understand the pros and cons of the route file types that somebody just sent you. You know, you can understand if it's a a KML or USR or GPX or, you know, what systems you have, what they accept, all these things. Um, You're going to know what to do with it quicker. Um, if you are savvy and understand um, the, all the apps you're using, you're going to understand how to download your maps more quickly, plan your routes, name them, file them. Um, you're going to have it, so it's going to be faster, but it's still going to take time. And I think that uh, the most important thing is you're planning for the things that can go wrong. You're not planning for the best case scenario, and you know, I'm sure everybody on this call goes, oh, yeah, you know, if it's going to happen and we didn't plan for it, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that's where uh, 
really working through the technology and having that plan. My, my husband just left for a big trip um, in northern Alaska today. He's flying into, he's going to Prudhoe Bay, um, Dead Horse and all that area up, you know, headed in the Arctic Circle. And, you know, we spent the time, um, you know, I, I'm going to make him finally sit down on one of my full navigation classes. <laughs> make him think that we, I was loading in everything into the garment, everything into um, the inReach, uh, prepping the app, putting everybody on it. And I always say, you know, spend, if you're going to do a big trip, he's doing a 10 day trip, you know, it, it committed minimum of 10 hours. And I usually say it's like 10 hours per, you know, let's say maybe two or three day section, but do the work, download the offline maps. Do you have a redundant system? Do you have some technology that is redundant? Do you, um, have you make sure, made sure all the gear is, you know, I've had, um, most people think of me as as traditional navigation with a map, but I spent all my time in the map, yes, but also in all these GPS units, all this te- all this technology, and you know I was out in in Africa, and one of my GPSs, um, one of the, a key function on the screen failed, and fortunately I could contact you know I had um, was able to contact Trail Tech, walk them through that. Wow, we've never seen that glitch before. Yeah, couldn't reset things. But fortunately, I had a second unit exactly like it, correct, um, with the information loaded in. And it took hours to download those um, uh, Africa-based maps, Northern Africa. And so, yeah, you just got to do, you've got to do the work. Um, You don't want it to be, if, if something bad could happen and you're either responsible or you're the person who's second in command or the person who needs to take the lead in case something happens to you. You don't want to go back and say, wow, I wish I'd spent that extra hour or that extra two hours. It is so common. I see the most common things are, are people don't take that time to prep and they end up in a class because something happened and they didn't take that time to prep and it scared them. Yeah. That's that's the wrong reason to take that was a long that was a long question. Yeah. So the answer is Jimmy, take time. Um if you especially if you don't know and Yeah, I and the more I learn Feeling about <laughs> adventure travel, Emily, and and uh overlanding all of it, like the more I'm looking at my life as a whole and thinking, I think I try to do too much and I try to do too much and so I go too fast. And, you know, to do some of these things well, it takes time. you got to carve it out. Um, and so, yeah, that, that really resonated with me. I was like, okay, you know, the navigation takes time. But then to win the rebel, right, you have to have the skills to make that time as efficient as possible. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the top level rebels and the rebels that have done it year after year just keep adding to that knowledge base. And what happens is, is they end up being extremely um, skilled at efficiency, like you said, really efficient, and they're efficient with their time. But also they train now using GPS. They, they realize that they have the skill. They understand coordinate systems, grid systems. They understand what the numbers mean. They understand how to use the technology. And then they understand what to do when the technology fails. Um, 
And that's really been, I, I like extremely rewarding to me because that is the goal. It's not just that they can handle a paper map. Um, it's that they become so well-rounded and they're the people that if you had to say, Hey, look, if the, I don't know if I can cuss on the podcast, but if shit goes down, you know, who do you want on your team? And, um, those are the ones I want on the team. You know, a, a good navigator, I, I see a lot of people fake in. They go, you know, fake until you make it. Well, you can't fake navigate. No, <laughs> you that's, do. that's called lost. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you, and you can see in people's eyes when they're, you know, when you turn around and say, hey, you know, what about this? Are we, is this where we're supposed to be? And they've got this glazed look totally. on their face. And you finally realize they've just been faking it the whole time. Kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it happened. That's when I realized um, I needed to be more than a driver. <laughs> I needed to, I needed to pay more attention in Coast Guard class. So. Yeah, Coast Guard class. Yeah, That's... I actually learned from uh, Coast Guard um, instructors and um, Coast Guard auxiliary instructors did a long course um, when I first was going to go over to Africa, um, and that was a rally I ended up taking shell to and you know a bunch of. Um, really great women. Um, yeah, I did six weeks and every time the lesson got hard, I would have that either glazed over look or I'd totally fake it. And then I think to myself, well, at least I'm the driver, you know? And then I realized that when, when you're a driver and, or a hiker or a skier, anybody in the backcountry, and 360 degrees around you is an option and you can't judge distance and you don't understand heading and you don't understand really the time speed distance relationship you are a boat anchor to your team and you are going to be i don't care how fast you drive if you if anything's an option you're not going to be as fast or as efficient depending on the task as you would be if you had those navigation skills and that's what we see now in the Rebel. The top teams train all the time. And the top, the real top teams can both drive and navigate. Mm-hmm. That wow. was something that um, my partner and I were pretty adamant about from the beginning is we wanted to be able to do both. And um, I mean, we didn't win. That's okay, though. But we were very confident in each other's choices all the time. And it was very helpful. Yeah. And then you just have a better team dynamic. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I just... The listeners are sitting here. I want you to think about the time that you've been on a trip, um, an, an overlanding trip, and you didn't have confidence in someone else's skill, or you realize that you maybe were the weak link, you know, and what that, what that feels like. So it definitely makes you think about your preparation differently. Also, thinks about makes you think about who you travel with <laughs> differently, especially for big expeditions. That was a conversation that um, that Jimmy has been talking about doing for a long time is like choosing really good travel partners for that reason. Um, and I think that's a, a just a conversation for it's just a whole other deep dive conversation of picking good partners. Um, it's like building a team. I think that segues nicely into the next question that I was going to kind of pose, um, which, you know, all the time. So we've talked a lot about like the time and the effort that you take that you should take or that uh, you do take into planning um, looking at your maps and your resources and, and doing the, your due diligence, um, that plays into the behind the scenes factor of all the things that go into the Rebel Rally. And so a lot of us think about like, oh, what is the Rebel Rally? And we know, um, 
you know, what it is on the surface or as a participant. But um, I think a lot of us would like to know more about the stories that go in um, behind the scenes and all the dang work that you and your team, your handpicked team, have done over the years um, and the stories that go behind that. Like, do you do you want to jump into oh, yeah. those things? Gosh, where do you start? I, I'm I don't. Right. Um, Brian Busby, uh, who is our fuel provider, sent out a note the other day to a bunch of us and said, we need to have a camping trip down at the beach and sit around a campfire and just tell stories. Because, every you know, the staff has their own stories. And, you know, for listeners who aren't as familiar, this is a 10-day car rally. It's the longest competitive rally in the United States. It is uh, really remote. We build multiple base camps across the desert. And it is, you know, it, they're 10 hour stages for the competitors, but, you know, they're up at five. They're not done until, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. But the staff is pretty much going all, all around the clock. You know, it is a rally for the staff. And, you know, it, it just so, we always say it just so happens to be for women. Our you know, our mission was to build a world-class competition and event. And that just so happened to be for women. And that was um, important for us. And a real badge of honor. It's, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing where you say something's hard and everybody's like, yeah, sure, it's hard. Mm -hmm. um, everybody also always thinks that somebody else's job or a job is easy until they do the job. Mm -hmm. And then they go, oh, that's harder than I thought. And that's the way it is with the rebel. Um, when it comes to actually laying the course out, um, there are only a couple of us that know the course. Myself and Jimmy know the full course, except the, the routes, although he doesn't know where all the checkpoints are. Or, Let me know. interject real quick, Emily. The Jimmy yeah. you're referring to is not me, even though my name is Jimmy Lewis. In fact, we're talking about a different Jimmy Lewis. Could you explain who we're talking yeah, about? Jimmy Lewis. <laughs> um, yeah, that confused me at first too. I was like, Hey, Jimmy Lewis and Jim, everyone talks. Oh, the course director. Um, he's a legend motorcycle racer. He is uh, first American to put in the Dakar. He's a, a legend in the space. Um, a legend, uh, when I believe a six-time ISD uh, gold medalist. Um, yeah, it's he's just a an amazing. I, I, he's trail savant. Uh, Jimmy knows the desert like no one else does. And he's the reason why we're doing really well at Dakar right now really is because uh, the U.S., because Jimmy's training them. As Casey Curry and, and some of the winners will tell you, um, Dakar is easy compared to training with Jimmy. Huh. Uh, and, and that's, you know, uh, Jimmy and I share a, a like-minded mindset. I think we would just assume it'd be a last man standing competition where you just go until everybody's beat down and just one team goes, I... I'm not going to give up to everybody. <laughs> um, and so we um, set the course and, you know, then I put in the lay in the checkpoints. And for example, right now, it's really hard. We've had so many course changes this year because of weather. Uh, we've lost, um, we've lost trails. We've lost some spectacular trails been able to replace them with some other spectacular trails but when we get to this year's event no one will have any idea what we went through to pull off the 2023 rebel um i just ran i've been you know i've done 
14, 15 days out of, uh, you know, a very short period. Um, I've spent most of my time on the trail lately and changing and, you know, laying out the course and then finding out that something got washed out, something, uh, you know, land management services came back and said, oh, oops, sorry, you can't go there now. Um, I went out on course on Friday, confirming a road book, realizing that the route we are using can't be used for that type of competition now because it got blown out with rain. And then we had Hurricane Hillary clump come through. So I'm expecting now we might not be able to use that at all. Uh, for Leah, who knows this course, um, for rebels who might be listening and staff that know this course, they understand it's not like an off-road race where you just take a GPS track log. Mm -hmm. And then you say, oh, we need to modify it. Then you have some virtual checkpoints. From checkpoint to checkpoint, and there will be 20 to 25 checkpoints a day, um, and potentially a roadbook and an on-time enduro. Each one of those is different for a different group. Each one of those is its own individual competition uh, between a point, meaning how you approach that competition. It's very, di it's like playing a chess game. So it's like having about 300 individual uh, stages because from point to point feels like um, it's not just following a track log. It's not just following a breadcrumb. And so that might be confusing. Go go to the Rebel website and learn more about the Well, <laughs> I was going to say earlier, we'll definitely list uh, a link to the Rebel and like for, for more information and so people can get a better idea of what this event actually is. But uh, yeah, I think. So, it, so it's really hard when you have to change that course because each point is assigned a score and a geo, a, uh, a geofence, a GPS geofence and all these different things to it and load it into real-time scoring systems. So every time I have to change the course, it's like doing mental gymnastics. And so I lie awake in bed. So for all the time I spend out on trail, which can this year will probably amount to about 40 plus days um, laying out that course. I'm going to spend 40 days lying awake in bed at night, um, rehearsing like every point and how to, or maybe how to change it now. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's really hard. And it's also, you know, I think we talked about this when we were prepping, uh, when you guys, when we first talked, the thing that people don't understand about what I do is that it's confidential. People will say, oh, well, do you, do you drive the course? Yeah, I drive the course. I drive the course a lot over and over and over again until like you memorize every corner, rock and turn and, you know, every point and where it is. And 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 Jimmy thinks about that, too. Who's going to be out there? You know how the teams are going to get through, how the media crews, how the safety teams are going to travel this route. But it's confidential. And so we can't post about, it. you know, everybody and, and Leah can attest to this. Everybody's always trying to figure out like. What did Emily and Jimmy, you know, where would they put the point? Where would they put mm -hmm. the base camp? Mm -hmm. But we can't post about it. We can't talk about it and talk about technology and the digital world we live in. It's kind of like if the for uh, if a tree falls in the forest and you don't hear it fall, did it actually fall? Um, in this day and age with social media and video and mm -hmm. filming everything. People don't realize 
we're spending all our time, you know, deep entrenched in this game. Mm -hmm. And we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it till it's later. And we have so much to do on course. We can't really, we can't film it. Mm -hmm. Um, We, we think about where every media camera position will go, but we think first about those competitors, think about their safety. Then we think about that media and we plan that out and we use the technology to document it all, load it into place. And we have to do that in such a way that our entire team, 127 staff, cannot know where any of this is because they can't compromise the integrity of the course. And so we have to manage the technology in a way that they can come back out blind, not knowing this course at all, and effectively go down this course and make it work seamlessly. So that's kind of tying in the behind the scenes along with a little bit of that technology. Um, imagine if you had to go out in the middle of nowhere and film or, you know, do these do these tasks. You've never been there before and nobody gave you the course file until nine o'clock the night before. And you had to be on point and better than the competitors to, I shouldn't say better than the competitors, but you have to be quick, efficient. Mm-hmm. You can't be stalling. You can't be fumbling with your tech. And then, um, so you can imagine the behind the scenes, going back to your question. I remember in our pre-combo, Emily, um, you started to remind me, like we, we've been fortunate enough to sit down with Mike Glover, you know, who's former special operations guy and a few other people like that. And their, your mindset struck me is very similar to theirs, like a special forces operator whose work is extremely intense extremely demanding, requires enormous skill sets, and also has to be somewhat clandestine or very clandestine in your case, you know, to, so, so the, the facts can't be let out. So the integrity of the competition remains. So it's like, there's this whole world happening behind the scenes in your life, kind of like a special operator, right? Like that you just, you will never know. You will never know. It's impossible, but you know, it's going on. Um, and I, I think, I feel like Leah, the Leah might laugh at this because we had a podcast not too long ago where the two of us were reflecting on our adventures recently and experiences. And Leah said, well, what on a scale of zero to 10, what would you give yourself on navigation for your last outing, Jimmy? And I said, I thought it was very honest. I said a three. And she's like, don't you think that's a little harsh? I don't know about a three. After talking to you, Emily, for you know 30 minutes, I think the three was 100% warranted. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm there are like navigation ninjas happening, you know, with with racing and and events like the Rebel that that are navigation based, and they're in a healthy way. It puts my skill sets into perspective, and really makes me realize like how much there is to learn in this one area of navigation to raise the bar. Yeah, the, the, it's really fun when you start learning it because once you actually learn and you really understand exactly where you are and you understand how to figure it out, you will never want to be lost again. It's a really unsettling feeling, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of people don't realize where, where they are within, you know, cause you learn how to know where you are within like 50 feet or less, um, kind of running a little blind and yeah, it's really unsettling when you don't know exactly where you are, but you realize you're always adding to that base level of knowledge. And there's always more to learn. 
there's just always more to learn. And, it, you know, it's really fun. Um, and the nice thing is, is that you can learn the skill. You know, our school, we started it because I, a lot of these lessons, I couldn't find anywhere in a complete class, probably unless I was in military, in a special ops type program. Um, I could get pieces of it, but it never actually came together in one setting. So I've also learned a lot of things the hard way. Um, and then I also have incredible navigators that are instructors with me, Chrissy Beavis, you know, um, you know, one of the best and, you know, having Jimmy and Chrissy and now, you know, uh, Chris Binzi and other, other resources, um, it's really been fun to put together a, a school that I say, gosh, I w it took me, what, you know, 20 years to learn all these things. And we just keep refining the curriculum. And I go, wow, I, I wish that I could take, have taken, you know, we've taken like a good 10 years of, of knowledge and crammed it into, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a two, three, four day course that it took me a long time and, you know, resources to get that experience. But then also at some point, you just have to get out there. You know, you want to be safe when you get out there, but you also, you learn from your mistakes. So I say, learn from my mistakes and get that base level of knowledge and then go out there and start making your own mistakes that hopefully you won't make mistakes that put you in danger. And I well, think I that's something that the overlanding community really needs to think about because it can be dangerous. Absolutely. I think that just circles back to our original conversation about technology versus um, your skills. And so, you know, your baseline is is navigation. We all want to go somewhere to see something new. And in order to get there, one, it starts with navigation and your, you know, you phys physically ma maps versus GPS. Um, but then once you're on the trail and you're actually like, I'm going to go, you need to have the skills to drive safely, um, use your tools safely. And, and, and hopefully you don't have to use your tools because you were able to pick a line you know, navigate up like you're talking about the road itself and looking at the the terrain um, and, and your skills start with your throttle and your tires before it starts with like, I'm just going to gun it and hope that I can winch myself out of this, you know? Uh, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I kind of want to bring that up, especially. What can you do in two wheel drive? Yes. Or in four wheel drive without, you know, high range, low range, no lockers stock manufactured vehicle, no upgrades, and a paper map. Or you don't even have a paper map. You are just looking at the sun and reading terrain. How good are you at that? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, um, I, I see people get into stuff, get into situations, or they're all already all locked up and they, you know, they use, they're really relying on that technology of the vehicle. But how good are you? without all of it and then start adding it in. So that's that kind of thing that we're talking about is then as you add it in, if you've got that base level of skill and then you start adding in all the bells and whistles and the technology, then boy, you can really take it next level. Now that is something I just, it really struck home for me early in the podcast when I introduced it as technology versus uh, paper or you know, skills, technology versus skills. And you're like, it's not really a versus thing. And um, that, that, that was very enlightening, I think, Emily, because 
know, a lot of our culture, we like to, you know, this versus that, this kind of dichotomous black and white thinking. And what you presented was, no, it's, it's an entire body of skills that begins without technology and then, you know, leads to technology, giving you more tools. And so it's kind of this, you know, overarching way of approaching navigation instead of, well, you're either learning, you know, GPS and Garmin or Onyx, or you're doing paper maps. You, you can combine all this is what I hear you saying. Oh, absolutely. And you should, you know, um, you really should. And because there are pros and cons to each thing, you know, when you've got digital tools, I mean, technology is not just navigation and all that. It's all the things, you know, um, it's all the bells and whistles, but you're limited by the size of your screen, you know? And so when you zoom in, you get more detail, but you lose the big picture. When you zoom out, you lose the detail. And the paper map, um, I did a, the Carta rally in Africa right as COVID was hitting. And it was a GP, it was a navigation rally, but boy, it was, it was fast moving, very fast moving. Um, and, but you used GPS. It was the GPS cup of the Carta rally. And it was really fascinating, but everybody thought we had this really special trick because I, fortunately we ended, we won it and, and but we weren't looking at paper maps. But what I'd done is I had multiple GPSs, multiple different types, um, multiple apps. I had heading, I able to see heading in multiple locations. But then what was cool is we had these digitized paper maps. And we they were digitized. So basically we took paper maps, digitized them, and co-located the um, X and Y axis in Photoshop. And we're able to see exactly where we are um, on the map. Hmm. And so I would actually, so everybody else is looking at overhead satellite images, but there were a lot of places where there were 400 foot cliffs, you know, cliff bands. And, but it looked completely flat if you were looking at it in, let's say, a lead nav or in Globe, which is a big European um, GPS unit. And, but I had a map that showed you know, a cliff that then showed the little teeth, you know, the little lines that extend off the cliff. So I could see, oh, we can't take that route. It, there's a big cliff right there, you know, but they couldn't see it on this satellite imagery because it all looks, you can't see the relief, not mm -hmm. in some way. You know, there were many times where I would jump out like, I, you know, I could, I understood the headings and, and it was based off a lot of this navigation, you know, and, and Lily the same, um, we could use a lot of different skills, not just reliant. Everybody else used the sponsor supplied GPS. Huh. And we didn't use the sponsor, sorry, sponsor. We didn't use the sponsor supplied GPS, but we used a number of tools and we were fast with them. So when all of a sudden we had a big decision to make, we had to make it fast. We could use our tools really fast. And honestly, we just, we smoked everybody in our, in our class, you know, and um, that, and I'm not saying that just we were really prepared, but we did a lot of preparation and we knew how to use the technology well. But if you took away the net technology, I could look at that and go, that is a big wash. Knowing how the water is going to flow, there's going to be a hard edge. You know, we're not going to be able to cross. So we're going to have to think about where we cross early. And you're having to read this as you're coming in hot. 
in your car and you can't just stop and think about it. And so that's why that it started with the, the base level skills that we had as a team translated to then using paper maps done digitally and then have the GPS. If we had just been working off GPS, we would have not done nearly as well for sure. That's a long, that's a long story to kind of get to the answer, but you know, hopefully it inspires somebody to. <laughs> this is long form conversation. So we're yeah. in the details. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, the, the other thing too is um, when you can toggle between the two, it's, it's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that easy and it takes, it just takes practice. Um, but what you don't want to do is find out that, you know, something happened to your technology. You know, I know recently, you know, Jimmy was down in Death Valley and every piece of technology, it was 124 degrees, heated up too much and wasn't usable. Mm -hmm. uh, and boy, you know, I've had that happen with like our, our medical director had a situation where that happened, but in the reverse, in the cold, mm -hmm. um, you know, the technology freezes up or glitches. So what do you have as the backup? Assume you don't have to use it, but do you have it? And if you had to use it, can you use it? So that's what I would say. Like people should ask themselves. Like I like I think a great thing to do is go to the Rebel website and you go through what the skills are of the Rebel. And it's the driving skills you need and the navigation skills you need. And it this isn't related to, to doing the Rebel. This is to overland. Mm -hmm. Rate yourself on a scale of like one to five, you know, five being the best. And then if you are a four to five, you better work on that skill because those are all the fundamentals. Not just understanding how to do it, but how to do it really well and quickly in the field. Mm -hmm. When I did the rebel, um, I came in pretty much blind. Um, I had spent a lot of time as the passenger in a truck doing a lot of off-road driving. Um, I mean, I live in Arizona. We have a ton of public land. That was just the back. That's just what we do like we, for fun. Um, and so my husband was the one who was like, if you want to do the rebel, I'm going to teach you how to do these things and how to drive. And, and um, one of the things that he taught me um, was like the first thing that you do when you get to dirt or a non-paved road or a gravel road is not to just quickly put it in four wheel. Like yeah. you start start with the bare, bare minimum. Right. Mm -hmm. And and then you let you add on as needed. Um, so it's not like we're immediately going on and airing down. And well, I mean, maybe you do that first, but. Um, but that's, the, that's the baseline here for what I'm saying is like you, I, I think it's just so important. You have to, you use your tools as you need them. Um, not all at once. That is, that is great advice. And, and, you know, yeah, we don't, I, I don't run a lot of the course in four wheel drive. I see how much I can do in two wheel drive. Correct. Yes, exactly. That, yes. That's my point. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So big picture too, Emily, just because we may have some listeners who are like still like the rebel rally. Like what, what are they talking about exactly? Uh, I'd love for you to just give a few more details about like what region of the country the rebel rally occurs in. Uh, so people kind of have this visual picture, oh, it's happening here in the United States. And then a little more about rebel you, like, for example, I feel like I was reading over your website and that some of those classes were open to men too. Am I Correct. Uh, yes, some are open to men. <laughs> so, like the rally is not open to men. 
but the but but the classes are because I got excited. I was like, I think I can take these classes because it sounds like exactly what I need to learn. Yeah, um, they are. In fact, we have men who really what we don't want is we don't want women to not sign up um, for class. And the reason why I say that is, you know, I've been a driving coach um, for 20 years and we've had situations where, well, many years where we ran, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 classes a year that were open to, to women for free. And we didn't have women come for years. I mean, we wouldn't even have one woman come. And, and then when they did come, if we had three women in a class of 24 people, that was a that was huge. And they go, wow, there's so many women. I go, so many women, three in a class of 24. Uh, yeah. So I really wanted an environment that women um, were really comfortable to say yes to and sign up. So Rebel Rally, um, you know, it is takes place in California, Nevada, Arizona. Um, it is in the fall in October. We cover every type of terrain, every altitude from, you know, this year will be from 10,000 feet to below sea level, um, every type of terrain, except pro- I don't want to say except for mud because that might mean we'll have <laughs> here um, from, you know, fun, uh, just smooth, you know, rally style, you know, gravel roads or dirt roads to double tracks, washes, dry lake beds, sand dunes, more sand dunes than I think people realize even exist in the United States, Um, you know, rocky terrain. And so, you know, the only thing we don't really have is like tons of like Rudy, like East Coast um, style terrain. Although we have had some of that, we've had that on a few years on the rally. We will have some of that this year. So, yeah. Ton, a lot of different types of terrain. Rebel U, we have classes. We have online classes. We have a navigation course actually next Tuesday that's open. It's a two hour navigation course free. Um, Rebel U, um, presented by Pennzoil, uh, has um, events that go on through, throughout the year. They are anywhere from one, primarily two day, three day, and four day classes two-day driving, two-day navigation, or doing it as a four-day um, shove together, um, a three-day navigation course that has a trials component, Rebel Trials, where you can try your hand at the format of Rebel, which is great. We did our first test on that this year. It was awesome. Um, in fact, I think we're going to be doing one in Canada this next year. That will be really fun. Um, yeah, and, and what's great is it's an event in, in itself. You know, you, you're camping, you get to test out your equipment there. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie. It is not just like going into, it's, it, it's very authentic. I'll put it that way. It's an authentic training experience and really fun, you know, and you get the community vibe. I think that's something that really, uh, sets the rebel, um, uniquely its own is the vibe of the rebel. And I think yet probably. I can speak to that. I I definitely um, went into my first year going like, I, like one, I, I had basically no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I had practiced a lot and I had not, learned not all this. Yeah, non- <laughs> no. yeah, this was only my first year. The rebel was the second year the rebel had ever been around. Um, and I, I just remember thinking like, I'm going to go into this as a complete novice. Um, 
and it's going to be obvious. Like it's going to be very clear. Like I, this is how I felt. It's going to be very clear that like, oh, that girl over there has no clue what she's doing. And um, within like the first day, like, we hadn't even left day zero. I, I just it occurred to me like we were all on the same playing field and there was no any there was no rock star out there who stood out and it was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just the best. I'm going to beat everybody. Like there wasn't anybody, anybody like that. And then even in the first couple of mornings, um, you know, we're plotting our points and it's dark and it's um, there were some teams who needed help and we needed help and they could, teams were helping other teams. And that was a beautiful thing. And then suddenly I realized like th- this isn't scary. I mean, it's it's scary, but they're like, it is not the kind of scary that I thought it was going to be. Um, and I have met so many people that I still t- talk to um, and, and friends that I have, that will have forever because of, because of it. So it's, yeah, sure. yeah, it's really unique when we have people that show up and they think that they're going to, you know, win it. And then they realize like by day three or four, like they just need to get to the finish line. And, and you realize you have to help your the person next to you and you have to form an alliance because if yeah. you um you know it, it, whether you believe in karma or whether you're just going to you're going to see them again mm-hmm. out on that trail and you may need them and you know you realize um that you you have to help each other to get to the mm-hmm. and and it's interesting i've been very um happy that our top competitors you know, they understand they are competing. They have a job to do, but they are, they've all had rough days on the rebel. Mm-hmm. They've all blown it. Nobody has had a perfect day. Um, you know, they've had really great days, but nobody's had a perfect 100% mark on the rebel. And it's just day after day. And so they know what it feels like. And they are, you know, Terilyn uh um, she has won the rebel four times, but she's the first person who's going to share her knowledge mm-hmm. um, with someone else. And she's going to say, well, first of all, it helps me have like great competitors to compete against. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the mark of a champion. Like, hey, I'm going to share this info because I want the game to be as challenging, mm-hmm. not just from the course, but from the competitors. That's pretty cool. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, lastly, just talking to people about where it is it's really important for me to build an event in america um i believe that we have some of the finest terrain in the world no question and i have been to a lot of places in the world and i've driven in the middle of nowhere and um we have when you think that you have death valley and we're less than 100 miles away as the crow flies, I mean, right over the, definitely less than right over the hill, um, you know, is Mount Whitney. So you've got the highest point in the lower 48 and you have the lowest point in the lower 48 and the geology and the, you know, natural occurrence that created these land formations is insane. And, you know, we, we get really consumed, I think, with wanting to go to different places. And I think that it's really good to do because overlanding overlanding out of your country introduces you to different cultures. Um, honestly, I think there's some different cultures between the West and different parts 100%. of our country. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're next to the end of the U.S. Uh, the South versus the Northwest, you know. Uh, but we, 
really like we make these trips to go and explore these other places, which I think is everyone should do. But the terrain we have here at home in our backyard is mind blowing. And no one's out there. You can be, you know, a, a five hour drive or actually, well, less than five hour drive from Los Angeles, you know, the most populated place in our country. And you're talking about you're out in the Mojave and there you don't see, we'll be out there for two, three days and not see a single car, not see a single person. And the majesty of the terrain is tremendous. Um, yeah. That was really important that we did this right here in, in America. It's that, that whole, I love that concept that the exotic is right, right here. Mm-hmm. It, you, you know, if you want something truly outside the ordinary, um, you can find it in the, in our, in our own country, um, in the West and possibly like I, I'm, I'm originally from the East coast, Emily. And so I, but I've gotten into all this stuff since I moved out here. Right. But now I look back some of these East Coast overlanders and I'm like, huh, that, that looks amazing. Like there's some really cool trails and places that I never even knew existed when I was back there that would be f- entirely foreign to me now in a really fun, kind of exciting way. Yeah, I love that. I love the people that come from New York that train for Rebel and they've never been to the West, but they are just such hardy stock, you know, yeah. <laughs> they they're hard and they um, they just have this like, Hey, no problem. I can do this. You know, same thing with yeah. Texas, you know, we have never been out and they like bring it, you know? Um, so it's really fun. And, and I think people have been shocked by the church we see here in America. You know, I will put it, you know, I, I've spent so much time in Morocco, a month plus at a time, you know, in Morocco, uh, for 10, 10, over a course of 10 years and, you know, or 10 years over a course of, of years. Um, I'll be back there again in, in spring. I'll, you know, I, you know, I love the area in the, in the Southern part of Africa as well, but, you know, I look at it and the terrain is beautiful. It's really cool. But the sheer relief of the American West, um, is like, like Morocco on steroids, mm-hmm. but what, cool about morocco is like the people and the culture and the colorfulness and the the blending of the cultures of of europe africa and the middle east in this place it's awesome but when it comes to like driving and driving terrain for long distances nothing beats you know the rockies west yeah and and definitely the southwest um i i wanted to bring up i think um something that I think is so unique to what you do and how much time you spend planning your checkpoints for the rebel is um, the thought process that goes behind the experience that the drivers and the navigators, the teams are going to have in the moment of, as they're approaching a checkpoint, like that checkpoint could be, like you said, there's 360 degrees around every checkpoint and you are very specific about like the direction in which they're going to come from so that they can see a specific view or, um, hit a turn in a specific way and and the thought that goes behind that and i think is one beautiful and two um there's a story that you have that i I think you should tell um, about planning these um, checkpoints (laughs) and you you mentioned some of the (laughs) yeah Um, i know we talked about this so i'm just leading in leading it up uh, here but um 
so one, I just wanted to just really reiterate like the, the experience that you bring to the rebel is not just so much like the, like, oh, we're just going to put you on this course and that is what it is. But the thought process behind it is so intentional. Um, and it really makes the drive that much more spectacular. And I say that firsthand. So, um, yeah, um, it intentional is a really good word. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy and I literally think about every way that they're going to drive and so we think this is and jimmy will come up with something that i haven't maybe driven before and i'll go out there i did happen this year and i went and he goes just trust me just drive it i'm like well doesn't do this this is yeah so i just go drive it and this just happened to me a couple of few weeks ago i didn't think it was going to be approved and then it looked like it was going to be approved I, i drove it and i just went are you kidding me like this exists, like I haven't driven this before. This is nuts. But if you drove it from east to west, it wouldn't be the same as driving it west to east. So, you know, um, sometimes the things that you're back, you're not looking out, you know, you're not looking out in the back. We have a section of the course that people are going to drive on day um, two this year. And they're going to drive down this thing. And if they were driving it with it at their back, it would just be like no big deal. Just like there's some trees and spotted rocks. And then they turn around and they're driving down this red rock canyon with these massive formations in front of them, peaks. And you're just going, are you joking? So it's like, okay, well, we can't run the course this way because they have to run this course in this this trail in this direction. Mm-hmm. So literally, um, you know, we get to the point where um, I'm thinking about this, a specific checkpoint right now where I don't want it to be a black diamond checkpoint because if they don't come to that exact spot where there will be a blue flag, they may not see this view. Mm-hmm. They may, if they don't come 15 more feet over this rise, they're going to miss out on this epic land, this epic landscape. Just so I think, okay, well, we have to, this has to be a blue checkpoint. Or it has to be a green checkpoint. Or, you know, we think about this section of course is super fun to drive. Um, and this section of course is not as fun to drive. Well, this is going to be the X route. And this means if they're going to get more points, but they're going to be rewarded for not being afraid to take the harder route. But it is so cool. You know, this has to be the X route. You know, I mean, we it, every single thing that we do is intentional. Sometimes it's just, hey, I just got to get you down the road. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's really that well thought out. Um, and I and if it weren't, I don't know if Jimmy and I would do it. Um, because for all the headache, the cost, the cost is, you can't imagine. For people to say this is expensive. Well, you know, when you average it out and you look at it, well, you know, to go on a ski trip is just as expensive or more expensive. Um, it's, it is, or a surf trip, you know, or a safari. Um, the cost is so much. The liability is high. The risk is high. Um, the logistics are, are, you know, the paperwork, the permitting. It is so worth it. When somebody steps up and said, oh my gosh, I went to this checkpoint because I just knew I had this feeling it was there for a reason. 
and I can't believe what I saw. Thank you for doing that. Like when people say, I can tell you and Jimmy, you know, thought about this one, you know, it makes it worth it. Otherwise, it, you know, when somebody tells me it, it changes their life, when somebody tells me they got a job, when they got a raise and a promotion um, because their boss didn't realize they were such a badass and then followed them during the rebel. Um, you know, those are the things that keep us going and make it worth doing this crazy thing. Um, it's, it's absolutely worth it. And, you know, I didn't do this to inspire people. So people will say, oh, you know, oh, I do this because I want to inspire people. And I, you know, um, you know, I'm of the mindset that you, you can't decide if you inspire people. You can just do what you do. And then people are going to decide, they're going to decide if you inspire them or if what you created or what you had a hand in inspired them. But a lot of people set out like, I want to inspire people. Well, that's great. I think we should all have the intention of doing something that makes the world a better place, you know, um, and gives back. And maybe um, you learn something yourself and maybe people can learn along the way. But boy, it is inspire it's inspiring for us to create this course that people yeah. come out and say i took a second yeah in, in briefings i'll sometimes say you know i'll read my notes very meticulously so nobody can misconstrue them then we post them and but i'll sometimes say hey this checkpoint here it's worth it to not miss it there's some people go oh yeah whatever well i've got you know and when I say something, I mean it. It means there was love put into that. <laughs> I just yeah. love how, how you have an appreciation for aesthetics in, in addition to the technical aspects of the course. I mean, yeah. what a tremendous experience that must be. Leah, I'm so envious that you had a chance to do this. But Jim, if you're not careful, we're going to put you on the staff. <laughs> Good happen. Like Jay, you know, Jimmy too. Dale. Yeah. Jimmy Lewis is on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, the other thing that we have to think about too is because it's for stock manufacturer vehicles, we have to vet out the course and say, okay, it can't be all rock crawling. You know, you'd never get anywhere. Um, right. We have to cover a certain amount of distance each day and we have to gauge can the cars do this? Mm -hmm. And has the driver had enough challenge? But then now, can the driver have some fun? Has the navigator, the navigator always has enough challenge, but now do we need to give them a break and a breather? Mm -hmm. um, I'll put in some sections where I want it to be tedious. I want it to be like, just like, ah, I can't take it anymore because that's where the best competitors buckle down. Mm -hmm. That's where in it is, you know, like, hey, this is hard or not but I don't care. I get the game. I want to win. And they don't give up and they kind of soldier through it. Um, but then you got to give them a break. You got to give them a, you got to give them a bonus. Like, oh, wow. Now the navigator can have a breather and then that driver can go have some fun, you know, or it's been real tedious for the driver. Like, oh, it's been, you know, rocky and rough, and crappy. Now do I have a section where I can just like, you know, cruise? Yeah. Um, so we think about that as well, that whole overall experience from start to finish. To clarify um, for the uh, for listeners, so it's always a team, driver, navigator in each vehicle. 
Yes. Yep. And a stock manufactured vehicle, there are two classes. There's 4 by 4 and there's X-Cross. X-Cross is just a name that we trademarked because we kind of thought um, uh, crossover is not a really great name for some really <laughs> cool vehicles. So um, there's so that's more of like your, your Subaru, your, your Porsche Cayenne, your Mitsubishi, um, you know, et cetera. Uh, yeah. on, on Hondas, um, the Ford Bronco Sport versus yeah. Ford Bronco. The Nissan Pathfinder. Then yeah, the Nissan Pathfinder. Um, uh, you competed in um, a Nissan, right? Or a- two, two yeah, Nissan. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we did the Frontier and the Armada. Oh yeah, there's <clears throat> yeah. a great picture of you and like airing up your tires on um, <laughs> our model. And I guess uh-huh. now, um, and yeah, it's um, really designed for those stock manufactured vehicles. So we have to make sure. That we have the kind of course that if you're a good driver, um, you're going to take care of that car. You're not going to hurt that car. Um, but we also have to give like crossovers sometimes need a little breather. They need a little pavement. Um, sometimes there are pavement transit sections and, and it allows us to connect um, different areas or different um, uh, public lands areas um, and get down the road. And it kind of also gives these stock cars a little bit of on course breather. I just thought of a question that I think might be really helpful and that for the rebel you, then you could show up for, and maybe something like a RAV4, for example, and be in the X-Cross class and not necessarily like have to have something like a Rubicon to take your courses at the No. Yeah. um, Because we're, we teach in driving and Jimmy Lewis and I, because Jimmy has a uh, motorcycle school and he talks about like, he doesn't have an advanced course. We have a fundamentals course, and you're going to spend the rest of your life working on those fundamentals in the car you have. We always say drive the car you have, not the car you wish you had. And, and you you refine your throttle control, your line choice, and your eye placement, um, and you and then your comfort, accuracy, relaxed questions that help you dictate you know your speed and how you're handling your vehicle. You're going to work on that for the rest of your life. And as you get better and better at that, your level of ability off-road continues to improve with those skills. So you can learn those skills whether you're in a, I mean, we have rental cars show up um, with stock, you know, just stock street tires. And we're going to teach them how to nail those fundamentals in that car. Mm-hmm. And it's, it really comes down to, to technique. And I'm going to borrow the term from Chris Walker at um, Overland Training Canada, uh, technique over technology. So techno- you know, technique first. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. Skills, <laughs> skills first, right? Yeah. And that's like something that like, I'm, I'm in the middle of a transition that way, Emily, in that as a motorcyclist, I, I love motorcycling, adventure motorcycling. <laughs> and so I've taken... Quite a few classes. I uh, took one at Willow Springs with Reg Pridmore uh, to learn street skills, which was fantastic. And then I took an off-road class with Chris Birch and Jimmy Lewis is right there on the list. Like I really want to go take a class with him, but I've taken a lot of classes. I study technique like crazy and skills like crazy, and it's really made a huge difference in my riding. Um, but with a vehicle, it's just been like, you know, I have a power wagon. It's like, oh, you know, going fishing or hunting, got to get up this road, throw it in four-wheel drive. So like I have as a Montanan some more skills than like the average person maybe who's never going into four wheel drive at all. But 
I would like to take what I've been doing with motorcycles and do that with driving vehicles. And it, it sounds like, you know, your classes and kind of your whole world is, is that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, there is no difference between, you know, skiing, cycling, like mountain biking, uh, riding a dirt bike and a car. They're line picking sports and you're coming into things with speed. So you have to manage where you're putting your, where you're putting your piece of equipment. So to me, you know, a vehicle is a high tech expensive piece of sports equipment mm-hmm. and how you fit in it, how you set yourself up, how you control that vehicle um, is just the same, whether you're on your skis, bike, motorcycle, it's just the same. And so you should apply those principles to a car, just like you do to that motorcycle. Your consequences are just bigger physically on your bike, you know, um, because you've got protection around you and your car, but the concept isn't any different. That's really helpful. And I'm sitting here thinking of how it's a hard leap maybe for a lot of us to make because in our culture, we grow up driving as uh, a means of transportation. You know, the daily driving, we think of driving as, as a utilitarian function to get us to work or to buy groceries or what, you know, but to think of driving as a sport, like I would skiing or snowmobiling or dirt biking, that that's a, a, a headspace shift for me to make. Um, and I, I guess I'm in the process of that now and just excited about what that can do for my capabilities with the vehicles I do drive. Yeah, it's true. I, I Maybe you guys are going to edit this out, but I can tell a good story. Um, <laughs> Rochelle, Rochelle has trained us with us a, a few times. And, um, you know, and always had the same fundamentals. I, I think she's maybe trained with us maybe like three or four times, maybe more. Um, and when she was really lear- first learning, you know, skills and with myself, with, with myself and Rod and um, uh, somebody, I think from X Overland came up to me and said, yeah, Rochelle, she's the smoothest. Cause I always focus on smooth driving. So, you know, if, if you can become a really smooth driver, you're going to have less breakage of your equipment. It's going to cost you less money <laughs> and you're going to be, you're going to be quicker. You're going to be efficient. It's going to instill trust in your passengers and your navigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that, you know, sympathy for your vehicle. Um, and it's the mark of a great driver, you know, that, that smooth, you know, at least in, in our book. And, so, yeah, so when to have somebody from X Overland go, Shell is the smoothest driver. <laughs> Again, yeah. it was classes. I was like, yeah. But, <laughs> it, but I think she's also always kind of thinking about that, you know, thinking about those lessons. You know, we we like that to be, we always want everyone to have a voice in their head because you can always train. You can train on your eye placement, your throttle control, your pedal, pedal control, um, and, you know, really focus on that even when you're driving down the street in your car on pavement mm-hmm. and if you do that you, you can get really good at left foot braking you know just driving to the store you know yeah. so you have, and when you can left foot brake you, and i don't care if you have a manual um i left foot brake in a manual but being able to have the vehicle control because sometimes you need throttle and brake at the same time if you can't two foot 
you know, if you can't two foot, you can't have the same amount because throttle control in or pedal control doesn't just control your speeding up and slowing down. It controls the weight of your vehicle mm -hmm. and, and you need that. Um, so, so Rochelle's, um, so hats off to Rochelle for, you know, always continuing to work on that, becoming a really great driver. So you get, I don't know, are you going to edit that out? We'll see the final. <laughs> no, I, I don't know I why we would. I think it's great. At all. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, you know, Rochelle is such an intense competitor and just driven to refine her skills and you just anything she does, just being around her, you can just sense that. And, and I've just heard from lots of people, like what an amazing driver she is and trained by great leads to great. I back around to the beginning of the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Michelle's a, a person that really is inspirational um, to people to show that, like, if you want it, you can go do it. You know, you just, she always says, start somewhere. And um, I borrow that a lot from her because you do, you just have to start somewhere. Um, I was very fortunate. I got, you know, selected by, you know, I got kind of um, asked by Rod to, to drive and like, hey, I'm going to teach you everything I know. You know, that doesn't happen every day. And, and that happened. But that you can't, if you want to go do these things, you can't wait for that to happen. You got to go find it. I think that's what I like about the Rebel so much. And then just the conversation about the stock vehicles. And it's something that, you know, ex-Overland gets questions about all the time um, is, you know, like, oh, what car should I buy to build out to my Overland vehicle? You probably could just start with the one you already have. Yeah. Throw your tent in, throw yeah. your tent in and throw your sleeping bag in. Mm -hmm. All that stuff's great. But, yeah. you know, I need a, a jet boil and a headlamp and, you know, some max tracks. And I need to be able to, and, and in my own battery pack, I need to be able to self-recover. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't call it really recover. I call it more like self-get unstuck. Yes. Recovery. <laughs> you know, I, I try not to get in those situations where we it's a real recovery. Right. <laughs> we call recovery that's getting unstuck to your thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in, your Overland vehicle is, you don't have to have all this stuff to go do that. You know, it's great. It's lovely. But you want a good set of tires? You know, I want, you know, a, a spork and a headlamp and a jet boil and, and water and some electrolytes and a, and a good sleeping bag and a good sleep. I, I want to get some sleep. Um, you know, and I, you know, I have my kit for, you know, how it's ready to go. And you want to make sure it's ready and the stuff's in there. Um but people have been overlanding, you know, since they pretty much invented the vehicle. And yeah, I mean, yeah. my- Oh gosh, I, some of those old picks, you know, I think of are just incredible what people are doing. Yeah, my, my dad, um, when he was a little kid, his aunt um, drove him. So my dad was born in 1929 and in 1937. Um, so you can imagine there wasn't an interstate system. Um, his aunt, who was an amazing woman, didn't have kids, so um, she drove him and my aunt to Acapulco um, from Arkansas, and it it was all dirt, basically. And uh, I thought, wow. you know, that is crazy, you know, wow. um, the jaunt. <laughs> I mean, that is that is crazy, and it was the it was wild down there, and you know, in the thirties, you know, just that crossing, you know, in the summer, not cool outside and people have been doing these things and they made it happen. Uh, I, mean, I, I would love to, so yeah, I would love to uh, just uh, find somebody 
who's like old enough to remember when and get them on the podcast to talk about the kind of thing you're talking about, Emily, like, like what was it like that far back? Like, so like, like talking to, if you could find one, a world war two veteran type of thing, like what, what were those vehicles like? What kind of things did they do and accomplish? Uh, they had no GPS, you know, to the navigation point. Yeah. I, I mean, I, Rod did the first, he, he did the first 50 Baja 1000s. The only person to do all 50 Baja 1000s. Um, pretty amazing. And, and I remember, um, you know, I got to sit, you know, with him so much in down in Baja. And in fact, he was my navigator for me for the first time I um, actually drove in Baja and wasn't sitting right seat, which is stressful. <laughs> I'm not navigating. Like he, he got in, he goes, I've never sat in this seat before. <laughs> um, and you know, he tell me these stories the first time he shows up in his, his Jeep and an ice chest and his, you know, like Levi jeans. Um, he had bruises from all the rivets by the time he got to the finish. And Bill Drop, this legend at the time, said, Rod, um, La Paz is south. It's not south, it's southeast. Take this compass. And he, you know, got, I think, like, fifth or something in the first one. I think one is class, but he said is key because Cabo was south and La Paz was southeast. And, you know, can you imagine? And he goes, we got to the end and his cooler was all filled with all this stuff. And it had bounced around so much. By the time he opened up the cooler, he said literally they vomited, like, from, you know, opening up his cooler after bouncing around. Because they didn't have suspension like that back in the day. You know, the off-road racing wasn't a thing overlanding they were just adventurous people who decided you know um because ed perlman had this vision to go you know start at the you know in tijuana and boring and go to you know go to la paz and yeah the stories are incredible um and that's why i think we need to make sure that people don't feel like they have to have all these expensive vehicles and expensive tech to to do these things. Mm-mm. I mean that is, that is my message, you know. Yeah, wow. you know, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking about the value, Emily, and it, before you spend money, if you're getting involved in in this sport, right, in this pursuit, uh, before you spend a lot of money on things, on gear, equipment, a fancier vehicle, take a class, invest that money in your skills. And see what you can do with what you have. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to have the build out to to go to go do something. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think we, sometimes we forget that. You know, but yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, we need young people um, getting out there and adventuring. You know, people. Yeah. Um, land management told me something, and I this is a kind of going maybe down a rabbit hole, but they're nervous because little kids are getting out there with their parents but not young people in that kind of age range of like late junior like junior high school to to high school and you protect what you love and you love what you know and if you don't get out there um and but do it responsibly and with skill um we're going to lose access if we don't do it responsibly and we're going to lose access if we don't lose and we are are starting to um, have been, we need to get people out there and there shouldn't be a big cost barrier 
um, to get there. Mm-hmm. It's, we, we've got to get people out there and, and exploring and appreciating. And, and in vehicle travel allows us to get to see things that we would never see otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in vehicle travel, I, I once, you know, trained a world champion kayaker. She said one of the biggest things that she had trouble with is driving to the put-in because sometimes you have to drive these routes that are really tough and everybody thinks, um, you know, it's, it's about just the kayaking, but you have to have a capable vehicle and a set of skills to get there in the first place. Yeah. Um, and one, yeah. yeah. So, you know, these skills are super important. Yeah. That's like a whole use, use group for us as a brand, I would say, Leah, is how we're you know, we're, we're focused on more than overlanding per se. We're focused on helping the kayaker, you know, reach that remote put in or the fly fisher or mountain yeah. biker or mm-hmm. you know, people who may never do the Pan American highway ever, but they're mm-hmm. utilizing overlanding vehicles to enrich what they do in the outdoors and give them more mm-hmm. capabilities. And all those people need education and how mm-hmm. to drive correctly for their own safety, for trail conservation, you know, all the mm-hmm. things we're talking about, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah that... and to meet and and to like interact with the culture. You know, I, I I've been to places. It was kind of crazy because I just took a group of friends to um, southern Morocco, right along the Algerian border, and we did a desert cross. And I took them into a village that the last time I was in that village, there was one power line, and it came into the village on some tree branches, and. Um, we were invited into the school and it was the first time they had ever met an American. Uh, and the kids would have like one hour of class a day for their age group. And this year I went back and there were big power lines. They had power, they had infrastructure and it was amazing. So the world and technology and, and, and infrastructure are getting, you know, into these remote locations, but there's still something about, you know, the tour bus, you know, the, the nice hotel is not there and you don't really get to learn about a culture until you see something beyond just the urban and the pretty and the um you know mm-hmm. great espresso um the great um chef you know it's and you don't get there by walking and you barely get there by riding your bike you can mm-hmm. um but that vehicle travel just like look at what rochelle and claire are doing right now with the kids in africa Taking them things, learn things that will such an impression on their life, and they got you know you have to get there with a, a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's a I just did the dive in the rabbit hole. In the world of social media, you know, people kind of think if you're not posting about it all the time, you don't do it. And mm-hmm. myself and Jimmy Lewis, we probably spend more time on the trail than and you know and Nicole Patel, um, uh, Mike Shirley. You know, some of the people that pre-run with me, we do, I, we do crazy stuff. I mean, Nicole and I got wet. Jimmy told us to pre-run a section and he hadn't done it in a few years and he did it on a UTV and he didn't tell me. I figured he did it on a motorcycle and it's been flooded out so much. We were down to one inch on either side of the car before we were going to stick our car in the middle of this rock canyon down a trail. And he goes, when we showed him the pictures, he goes, eh, it's not that bad. Well, what were you driving? We announced because oh, because of all the rainfall, the canyon has dug down deep, so the walls of the canyon go like this, and so the road used to be up here. Now it's down here, and so we we get ourselves in situations where we're just going, you know, 
I'm out of the car walking and spawning and Nicole and I are walking. Mike Shirley and I are doing the same thing. Jimmy, we're dropping down these waterfalls and stuff. We're just like, not waterfalls, tread lightly, but like rock waterfalls. And, and, uh, you know, but you can't show anyone. And so they assume that you don't do it. And we do it probably, you know, maybe 10 times as much time on trail than, than most people. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. The world doesn't need to know that. I'd love to show some of the pictures, but I can't. You know, I think of that too, Emily, and just how like this whole space goes round and that we, we've we had a lot of influencers on, of course, and uh, filmmakers, really, you know, like really accomplished, highly skilled filmmakers. And the challenge of filming your adventures I'm seeing is, is its own technical challenge in terms of skill and time involved, like the time it takes to film what you're doing. Like you guys could never do, do that because you're doing so much, right? It's like, unless you had a film crew, and even if you did, they'd be like, well, we need to just, you know, stop or cut or do whatever. Like it's, there are two different worlds where, you know, people are filming and thank goodness they do, because then we get to see what what they do sure. and get inspired by that, right? And you guys are doing something that I, I would argue, unless you had a really, you know, extreme film crew and you didn't have to worry about it at all, you know, and maybe that's what you need to do. Uh, yeah. like not, not in a way that's going to reveal the rebel's root, but maybe you need a documentary about the rebel. Well, actually, we're working on that right now. We're putting out okay. our first, um, you know, we have incredible film. We have actually a 38% um, content collection tape on the rebel. Okay. Uh, I should take them with me more. And they are always like, hey, we want to go with you more. Um, yeah. They were actually just out with us for a bit. And, um, but we do, We I came from the action sports world, so I'm very fortunate that we are connected to the people that know how to, in fact, some of the filmmakers that are actually on the rebel are top-notch. One just did a big uh, DP on a big HBO thing on from climbing and big like major outdoor sports, we work with some of the best and they know how to get the shot and they're super skilled and capable. And it's sort of like the Jimmy Chin, you know, style. Um, and so that is really great because you have that type of filmmaker and then you have the, the ones who, um, you know, it's a little bit more, they're working on the staging of it, et cetera. So they're definitely all different lengths. And I man, mad respect for the people um, that can, you know, do it like following the amazing race when it was down in, in Fiji, you know, like they, that production has some of the best filmmakers and they had to capture it, but they had to do the same thing that those competitors were doing yet film it and not get in the way. That's hard to do. Super hard to do. Usually Jimmy and I, Jimmy and I will be like, gosh, too bad. We don't have a video camera going on, but we're too worried that Mike's going to bash in the side of his car. We're like, can't stop now and can't recreate that um but it's 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 true um we have a lot to do in a short period of time and burning daylight um and but yeah check for the check for the next drop of what we're gonna put out there the other thing too is sometimes we don't want things filmed there are things that places where we take people on the rebel that we can feel like hey you got something special that is not just for anyone to see. Now, um, and we also don't want it to get some places to get so discovered that it gets overused. Um, 
So we're concerned about that because I spend so much time on the trail. I've seen the degradation of the trail over the last, mm-hmm. over the years that is happening at an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that. Really bad. And so, um, yeah, so sometimes it's like you got to do the rebel so you can find the secret spots because we mm-hmm. them for you. And guess what? And no, you keep them secret. And no one's filming it. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, um, we went out, and this was uh, during the pandemic, and we had just we had just gone through a place called the Reward Mine, and you should look it up because the Reward Mine is in the Owens River Valley near Bishop, California, and it is a, a mine that you can drive into, and it drops down underneath this mountain and is the most claustrophobic, frightening thing to drive through. And so the world is stopped, you know, no one is out. Uh, we're driving, no one's out on the trail. And I drive into this mine and, and Nicole Patel is with me, just a single car deal. We have all of our survival equipment. And I said, oh my gosh, I hope there's not an earthquake. And, uh, and she's like, she's stressing. said that, like, don't yeah. say that, you know? And so, uh, we, we go on and then we had we had some really interesting kind of sketchy things happen on the trail. And then we stop and we camp and we're west of Tonopah, Nevada, about 35 miles west of Tonopah. No one is out because really no one is allowed to be out. She, her business had a, um, they do uh, projects for the military, things like that. So she had like basically a hall pass to be able to be out and about. And we were going to camp in this one canyon. We decided not to. We tr- decided to make some more progress. We camp out in this open area behind a little knoll. And at about 4.06 a.m. or 4.03, I get w- woken up with this rumbling earthquake. And it's like, whoa. And Nicole says, did you feel that? I'm like, uh, yeah. And right about the time we said that, it started up again. And it was... Technically, it was the largest earthquake in like Nevada's history. And it was a 7.0 and it was right on the surface of, of the Earth's crust. And so it started and it was so violent. Um, it, 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 it went on for a long time. And the amount of shaking, I tried to stay, I couldn't stand up. I turned over, I was, I was on my stomach, I'm holding my um, uh, sleeping pad and literally bouncing off the ground. And we could hear the truck bouncing. It was kind of parked on a little angle, and I was afraid the truck was going to follow on, onto us. And because you, you could hear the suspension thing, and, um, and it was so violent. We were both screaming, and we could not hear each other screaming. And um, right about when we thought it was going to be the worst, we hear this extremely violent pop. And when the pop happened, then it went completely Richter, like just insane. And then all of a sudden you could hear it start to, and you could feel it roll away. You could feel like the ripples. And it was kind of literally rolling away from us to the east. And um, immediately I thought, okay, that was the big one. San Francisco, because based on where we were, I was like, mm-hmm. Francisco is done. Uh, we are going to step out of here and it's going to be a different world. 
We're in the midst of COVID. No one knows what's going on. We just had a massive earthquake. Barry will be destroyed. Um, we have just entered a new era. You know, that is immediately what I thought. But I couldn't tell any, only like two people, three people knew where we were, four people, right. my husband, but they didn't know exactly where we were. Um, we we run, you know, a Garmin inReach always. We always have an Iridium device with us. Um, we were only one bar of cell service, which I couldn't even believe we had one bar. And Harry Wagner, who's a geophysicist in Reno, knew we were pre-running. And he just said, are you okay? And, you know, um, I looked up, I was able to get enough service to look up the USGS. And it said, um, uh, there is a 7.0 earthquake 35 miles west of Tonopah. And he went, hmm. 35 miles west of Tonopah. And literally, we were camped on the epicenter of Nevada's biggest earthquake. And we could not tell us all. And we lived through it. I can tell you, we were actually on the, we were on the epicenter. So technically the epicenter is the GPS coordinate. You know, so it is one point. But the radius extends out for a few kilometers. And we were in that looking right at it. The, you know, the highway was cut in half. Everything was shut down. Um, the next morning, the aftershocks were insane. It was, it was scary. You know, I literally, I thought we were going to die for sure. Um, I don't know where we were going to die from. except maybe the truck landing on us. The, the like, big, huge lake bed sunk. Um, we had rock massive boulders when we were driving out of there. Um, and we were the only people around. In fact, uh, USGS, everybody was out there and they were like, what are you doing here? You drove through the barriers. I'm like, no, we, no, were we didn't there we before. <laughs> Trust me. Um, and, but we, there were boulders that were ejected off of cliffs, cliff bands. And deposited in the middle of freshly graded roads. They didn't roll down. They literally ejected um, that were the size of cars. And, you know, it was wild. And I couldn't tell anyone because if I told anyone, they would know where the course is. So um, I couldn't tell anybody for, you know, months. And so, but now twice uh, that year, I put a, um, a black diamond checkpoint on the exact coordinate of the epicenter. And I've done that. Oh. Uh, so sometimes our checkpoints have like little special back end stories that we can remember that are special to us. Uh, but you know, the thing is, is in this day and age, most people would rush out and tell the story and post on social mm-hmm. and then do, you know, um, you know, talk about it and everything. And it's kind of been a joy to be able to kind of have that for a small, tight group of people. Now, it almost seems mandatory to share these sort of badass things you do. And I can tell you that some of the biggest badasses on the planet, you know, aren't out sharing everything on social. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they didn't do it. Right. I'm not saying myself. I'm just saying they're alone. I can't, right? I can't, like for lots of different reasons. I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, the person who's quiet about things, usually there's a whole lot (laughs) going on. And uh, Emily, I'll just, to the point, uh, in my podcast experience so far, that is 
by far the most extraordinary camping story and travel story I have ever heard by anyone in any field, hunting, you know, overlanding, whatever, to be lying on your thermorest while the earth is going over 7.0 on the Richter scale. <laughs> It's yeah, like that she was I mean, holding on to the thermorest as if it yeah. might like save her. <laughs> right, right, right. Is it like a, a spring falling? Yeah. That I, is, I, well, that's I, why I wanted I, to tell I, the story. Just extraordinary. I have the photos. So the truck actually popped um, about eight inches away from where it was sitting. And there were cracks all around the ground. I, I have all those photos. And so instead of just driving out of there that morning, um, that we had a football with us. So, uh, you know, I turn on the jet boil and, um, literally we would just lie on the grass so we throw the football and if the you know the um the aftershock was big we lie down on the ground and just like watch it rip we could watch it the earth move mm -hmm. and, and you know and and so i'll have this story with this friend you know um you know nicole patel who owns total chaos fabrication um and we just had to laugh about it because sometimes we'll go did these, that really happen? The crazy women out in the middle of the desert, you know, doing things and, ex and exploring and exploring trail, um, you know, running sand dunes in, you know, 124 degrees and doing these crazy things. Um, but we have to be prepared and we have to be safe, but we have to be ready for those things. Um, but it's just sort of for us to tell the stories. That's why I, I sort of feel like, you know, it is what we do is kind of there's all kind of a military-ish component to it. That's that camaraderie and skill and you got to have each other's back and you can't have a weak link in the team. And so I'm, I feel like I kind of may have missed my calling a little bit on, you know, maybe not out there, you know, not as, you know, a, a, assisting some of these like really interesting um, kind of missions, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I could totally see you in that role, but the same time I'm i don't so think we missed your calling at all <laughs> yeah i think you hit calling 100 percent. just thinking right, of all right. the people who yeah. get to learn from you and are inspired by you and whose lives will be enriched by you um you know that that's i'm with leah there i feel like mm -hmm. that's probably why it is your calling yeah it's it's, it's pretty fun um <laughs> some, days, some days you kind of go i would just love to have a trip where you didn't, you weren't just gripped with like, uh-oh. Well, man, I, there, there's more I would love to get into, Emily. Um, but we have really, you know, monopolized your time here for not just this conversation, but the pre-conversation where we, we all got off in, into the deep end there too. Uh, just speaks to how much fun and how entertaining it is to talk to you. And um, I sure hope our listeners have learned as much as we have. Well, th thank you. It, it's it's fun to be a part of it. I love what X Overland does, and I love, um, you know, being able to know them and watch them through the years of the the build up and and you know, I just know that there are people out there, you know, exploring because X Overland has has inspired them and you know really um, uh, help you know be an anchor point to that kind of world of vehicle adventure. And, you know, it's just a, you know, I've loved watching it over the years and and to be, be close to it has been an honor. So I would just say everybody, you know, like um, follow, you know, Rochelle's lead, you know, um, start somewhere 
Um, and you know, Leah, uh, you know, it's, um, it is so fun to work with you and it is going to be so, it's been fun to watch you as a competitor and have you on the team and to have a community of truly super skilled, capable people, um, you know, uh, reg regardless of gender, you know, just, it's all about just humans with, with great skill and great attitude. And so thanks for being on the team and oh, Jim yeah. Lewis, watch out. Um, you're probably, uh, next we're going to be calling you that. <laughs> I would be honored, Emily. And uh, I have no doubt I would learn a lot and have fun doing it. All right. Yeah. It's an honor to be a part of the rebel team and on XO team too. I mean, I, I sometimes I middle of the night, I'm like, what the heck am I doing with my life? It's what, how did I get here? It's just incredible. And the people that are drawn into this this group and into Emily's group, it's, I mean, you just, you're like magnets. You bring in the good ones. Well, I thank you. So. It's tough out there. Um, I know that you guys are trying to wrap up, but just a quick story. And Leah, I don't yeah, know if you're on it, but um, you're talking about uh, the things that happen out there. A couple of years ago, we had the, like, the largest windstorm that swept mm. kind of the Western U.S. I was very lucky to not be on that one. Yeah, be, be glad you were on it. And that's why you want people who are really good because uh, we had 70 mile per hour sustained winds for 21 hours. Um, we had to pull, we had to evacuate the base camps. Um, it just ripped them to shreds. It um, it snowed that day on the competitors. All the competitors came in and said, that was our favorite day. We got to drive down Titans Canyon and do all the stuff. And we were going, oh my gosh, you know, there were ostriches running across the desert that's another story we have that's that. a new one <laughs> new one um complete whiteout. you couldn't see 20 feet in front of you the kitchen staff cooked for us inside the refrigerator truck um the fuel trucks had to leave because of uh static electricity and we knew that you know it, i mean it was an extremely dangerous situation fortunately we had a BLM officer who was came, a ranger who was fresh out of Afghanistan who sat through it with us and was like, wow, that was textbook, you know, because we have such good staff that we go through the ringer with each other. Um, and you walk away with these really great stories. Um, so if, um, um, so a big shout out, I would say to the staff um, that are on the rally, just thank you for doing that. Because the stories we have, you know, from evacuations, from wildfires to snowstorms to windstorms, um, the rebel kind of throws it all at you. So um, I don't know if that was sounds appealing to people, but sign up. Sign up. <laughs> I want the documentary. Really, fun. <laughs> really want that documentary. It'll yeah. be amazing, I'm sure. Gosh, you know, just, yeah, getting into the backstory that happens behind the rebel. And thanks for the compliments, Emily, too, to X Overland. Uh, just, you know, I I would say the mission of our brand at this point is to bring more voices than our own into our space and share those with our audience, uh, like your voice today, and just, you know, enriching all the perspectives we can offer in this community. So this was an awesome episode, and uh, I'm leaving here better educated and inspired. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hey, oh, I always you. steal when I leave Emily Miller. <laughs> You're so good. I know. I want to keep talking. Honestly, <laughs> I'm just trying to be, you know, decent, and respectful of her time. Well, <laughs> you got to pick up the kids, right? I do. I do. Yeah. The kids uh, are like, where is she? 
Well, we will see you out on the trail. And Leah, I will see you at soon. Next inspection. Yes, absolutely. All right, Leah. So you opened us, so you have to close us. Well, let me just do that for you real quick um, with my expertise. Um, Thank you for listening to the Exoland podcast. You can um, check us out on all the social media platforms as well as Emily Miller. And um, she's everywhere. I think it's, you want to remind us of your handles or Um, the rebels? I think Emily off road. um, Right. On Instagram. And Mm -hmm. when I I do posts, usually I'll sometimes maybe reveal some things. Who knows? (laughs) Um, And that at rebelrally.com. Yeah. And we'll be sure to uh, link all the things that we talked about, including the Rebel Rally itself and Rebel You and all of those things. And um, in the meantime, we hope that you all find the inspiration to hashtag start somewhere, as uh, Rochelle Croft says. That's it. Thanks, folks. <laughs> Great job, Leah. Emily, Thank you so much. already looking forward to next time. <laughs> Bye, right. everyone. Bye. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, stay adventurous. Thank you.